that's my new my new like expletive. It's like <laughs> boobs on a sphinx. What what is going on? <laughs> Hello and welcome to An Englishman and an Irishman Go to the Movies, the podcast that would have let the horse live. Joining us this week, special guest, I mean you've never seen him before, it's not like we go on about him too much, it's the never-ending man himself, Albert Hogan. Hello again, nice to be back. What's this, two weeks we've managed without me coming back on the pod? I think we did two, yeah, I think we did two full episodes and it was like, no, we miss Albert. And... Joining us as joining us, sorry, you've just been demoted to the third host. Joining with, with me, joining me, he's here as always. It's the man, not that it matters, who doesn't know if he even cares himself. Sean Ferrick. I got promoted to third <laughs> host. <laughs> Yay! This is that that fumbled intro is what you get when I've got to come up with three lines based on a film I've only seen once that apparently has a bit of significance in everybody's childhood, so deal with it. Okay, so here's the fun thing for everyone who's listening. Obviously, you'll have seen in the title of the episode that we are, of course, covering The NeverEnding Story. But also, plot twist, we all saw a new version of The NeverEnding Story this evening. Because was it? We, was it actually? We, we bought our copy of it, but it was the not version that we all saw. Well, two of us saw growing up. Uh, because there is, Albert, there is the American version and the German version that Correct. is also in English. Yes. So but th- it has German writing. But it has German writing, yes. Yeah, so the film um, was produced and most of it shot in Germany. Um, the original German uh, release, which came out before the US, which is sort of a rarity in itself, um, is six minutes longer than the US version. And it also has some different score music. So it was actually almost like watching the film for the first time again for myself and Sean, who have seen it many times before. Yeah, it didn't seem... I'm not going to put myself through it and watch the American version, but it was... Yeah, obviously it didn't really mean much to me because I I hadn't seen the original, but I can't imagine... it. Was it a lot different, really? Music was the only thing I noticed, but other than that, not really. And I was saying to Albert as well that the only thing... So it's been a long time since I've seen the film, but I did see it when I was only a nipper. And the thing that got me is it's how scenes from the film stick in your memory, but they're jumbled like a jigsaw. So there was stuff happening at the start of the film that I was like, but I remember this being the most emotional crutch of the film. Why is it happening five minutes in? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I did the same with Aladdin, um, which is a nice segue. So before we get into the never ending story, uh, and I promise Albert, I will not ruin your childhood. Um, we're gonna. Um, I want to talk now. I got a bit of heat on Twitter for the Crown. Um, <laughs> now I'm not not a negative. You will notice that Ian's <laughs> Twitter account has been shut. Yeah, it's down. been. I've turned it off now. Sorry. Um, I, I'm not a negative person. The Crown definitely rubbed me the wrong way. It sounds like I'm sure the show has got merit. It's well produced. I'm sure it's fine to watch. I think I just can't watch it because of who it's based on so that's fair enough so what do you think i thought of aladdin so on albert's recommendation i finally got around to watching the live action version of aladdin um i don't think we've mentioned this on the pod but as a rule i think that the live action remakes of the cartoons are a bit unnecessary sacrilegious 
What was that you said a moment ago? Not you're, a negative you're, you're not a what person? Yeah, okay, I, yeah, I think yeah, they're a bit yeah. unnecessary. What do you think I thought of Aladdin? Uh, I think that's... I mean, this is only an hour long, and we've already had a 25-minute rant on The Crown this week already, so... What did you think of Aladdin, Ian? Loved it! I, re- I genuinely... What? I really liked it. You're just faking it, aren't you? Because you were so on the other end. <laughs> you're absolutely week. fucking you're just, with us, aren't you? I need, I'm desperate for some good press. Um, no, genuinely, I surprised myself. I went in there like almost... We weren't covering it on the pod, but I went in there kind of like notepad and pen in hand waiting to like tear it apart. And I was pleasantly surprised. Um, it, it, my, so my favourite... Um, Disney animated film is Aladdin is the original so that can go one of two ways I'm either going to hate this one no matter what because it's ruining the memory of the original or maybe I've shifted too much the other way and I love it because I love the original Um, but either way I love it I think what they did I think Will Smith bless him he can't hit them big notes can he (laughs) but he does he does a brilliant genie he really does yeah and he's proper hench in it as well like proper it's absolutely yeah. ripped <laughs> but he makes it his own as well like he was always going to be always going to be compared to Robin Williams like that is it's my favourite Robin Williams performance um, but he makes it his own and he, he absolutely t- does a, a twist on it that is totally different um, but still the same genie that we that we know and love um, the new songs were a bit unnecessary but I get them um, I'm glad that Jasmine got a meteor roll, but her songs were like, cool, let it go. <laughs> I'm be speechless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you think that for both, say, both the Will Smith performance and also just the film in general, do you think you enjoyed it so much because you probably weren't expecting much? Or do you think, no, no, it is genuinely a good film? Um, I... Can't answer that because, (laughs) like, genuine. I deep down, I don't think it is a good film because I don't think your two leads are very, are particularly good actors. Oh, thank God, Ian's back. Yeah, sorry. He's a fantastic dancer and she's a fantastic singer, but I don't think they can act their way out of paper bags. But it's, I, I still, it's passable. I I challenge that. I think I I mean knowing what else Naomi Scott was bringing in particular, she is actually a very good actress. I would say. and actually, because she was the pink Power Ranger in Power Rangers, another kind of remake. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it, film. and I actually really enjoyed her in it because I thought she, you know, she could have gone a kind of tried and tested route, but actually brought a bit of edge to it. So I, I'm a fan of Naomi Scott. Um, I also thought Mina Masood was really good in it, and actually, you know, Aladdin is such a difficult character as my dog is growling in the background sorry (laughs) (laughs) he's right she is right to disagree with you (laughs) you tell him it's a bad performance is not a difficult character you see (laughs) anyone can do it just put a hat on your head and a monkey on your shoulder apologies to your listeners that is my um my animated animal speaking in the background that's beautiful it's fine (laughs) Uh, i'll put a pin in that until i've seen power rangers never um, See, I but, think you might like it. I hope so. It's, it's good fun. fun. It is good fun. Yeah. I presume you watched Power Rangers when you were small. Oh, as well, de- like, that's one of my earliest film memories. Is the the Power Rangers movie with all of the the pinky purple slime and do they jump out of a plane or something? I can't remember, but it's pretty cool. I remember they become ninjas at one point. Yeah. So, bottom line, 
bottom line, I enjoyed. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Aladdin. I really did. Um, I think I probably had the bar quite low on my expectations, so I think it came in and really surprised me. And the I've never had a friend like me and the um, Ali Ababa songs flipping incredible like tingles when will smith is leading the parade in and does like the final bit it's that's yeah, an incredible really really, really, really well it? done the way it's choreographed it and everything phenomenal now so i'm good. worried right because I, I'll, I'll say now i'm now number i'm number three as usual ian's standards <laughs> but no i haven't seen the film yet and i know albert really enjoyed the film and ian you're obviously you've just experienced the yeah. film and so you said there's bits you love so i'm like well, well, where where do I set the bar? Do, do do I set it low and I go in and you know it's a pleasant surprise? Do I set it high and be disappointed? You've ruined me, gentlemen. <laughs> well, you, ruined well, I mean, me. we know that anyway. But you might be a good well, barometer true, yeah. then because you might actually go in and watch it for the film that it is. Um, <laughs> maybe I don't know. But no, bottom yeah, I absolutely loved it. My favourite bit is the carpet in the background when Jeannie's doing the explanation of well, you can be a prince, but there's some like caveats. And the carpet's just in the background making the Disney sandcastle and it just like the little flare. <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, it's good. That's one of the things I love in the cartoon. You know, he's, again, I think it's probably the same scene from the way you're describing it, but where Genie is going through his book of how to make a prince and he pulls out Pinocchio <laughs> and he pulls out Sebastian the Crab. I love those really little nods. Really good. Oh, I love those nods. Cool. Um, well, that was me trying to redeem myself for being a negative ninny um, for last week. I'm not going to apologise, the crown's shit. Um, should we do should we do some news? Because there is some news this week. News team, assemble! So there's there's two things that we're going to talk about. Um, Albert, take the lead on this one, the Tom and Jerry cartoon. I didn't even know this was coming. This had completely flown under my radar. Yeah, same for me. I mean, it, it came up as a sort of a, I think it was a pre-roll ad on YouTube and I was a bit like, there's a Tom and Jerry what? movie coming. And Chloe Grace Moretz is in it. And then I watched it and I was like, huh? Um, <laughs> it's it's an interesting animated live action hybrid nonsensical unnecessary film by the looks of it um, but apparently it's the 80th anniversary this year of Tom and Jerry it was originally supposed to be released this year um, but it's been pushed back to next year because of COVID um, so COVID? Yeah, What's that? Yeah. Small, small thing, small, small deal so yeah, yeah it's small it's, if you're a Republican. <laughs> it's um, it's peculiar, and I think I I messaged you guys, and I was like, I've just watched this, we need to talk about it. Um, so you both have watched it now, I believe. So I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, Ian, yours is fresher. You've just watched. Yeah. It. What what are you? Thanks think? for outing me as not doing any prep work again. Um, yeah. So it it feels like it's 15 years too late because interestingly, the a couple of weeks ago, I accidentally watched half of uh, is it Looney Tunes back in action it's with the one with oh I've not seen that I thought that looked okay the one with know? Brandon Fraser and yeah, yeah it's it's fine it's it's cool but it's it's 2000s and it's 2000s as fuck like it's definitely a bit dated now um 
But this just seemed this trailer did nothing for me. I've just rewatched the cartoons. Just release them all on Blu-ray. Like do a big re-release of the actual cartoons. This was it was I wouldn't be surprised if they'd copied and pasted some of the set pieces from the cartoon into the film because even the trailer has got yeah, Tom's fingers getting slammed in the windowsill a hundred times. Jerry moving there's the entrance to pianos. his house. Yeah, there's a mm-hmm. piano in there. and it's, It just doesn't do it for me. And it's like they've chucked um, Chloe Grace Moretz, um, Ken Jeong, um, Michael Pena, and it's... You guys are better than this. It, it didn't need these guys in it, because Tom and Jerry are your stars. Okay, I, I guess in a way, not devil's advocate, because I, I feel many of the things that you feel as well. I think you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head when you said 15 years too late, um, because it does feel like a movie from the early 2000s. You've got contemporary song in the trailer. You've got contemporary actors and actresses who yeah. are, you know, they're, they're, they're quite successful. But them themselves will date the film in about 10 years from now. It, absolutely. I feel that every film since Space Jam has yes. tried to hit the, you know... Awesomeness uh, uh, of uh, Space my, my, Jam. Thank you, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was, tr- was trying to think of the best possible word. Awesomeness of Space Jam. And Space Jam itself was lightning in a bottle. It was, yeah. you know, it was great. It was fun. It was silly. And it shouldn't have worked, but it did. I mean... Michael Jordan is not an actor. And Michael Jordan will tell you yes. that Michael Jordan is not an actor. And yet it was great and it was fun and everything. And they've, they've tried to do that since. And even, in fairness, Looney Tunes have tried yeah, to do that we've, since. Yeah, we've nowhere near the same mm. success. Um, yeah, I didn't think of it like that. I think they're just trying to recreate the magic of Space Jam. It just doesn't... I mean, the only way they're going to do it is make Space Jam 2. Thank God they're not going to do that. Isn't that confirmed and on the way? Oh, sorry, my face doesn't come across well on the podcast, but yes. It with LeBron. Oh is it with? Who's it with? I, I actually think you might be right there. Is it LeBron James? I think you might be right. Um, as we all <laughs> quick, somebody fill the void. If, as we all quickly IMDb. If this. only we had immediate access to some information superhighway that could immediately tell us this. Yeah, it is LeBron James. I'm getting the thumbs up from our director. Cool. Uh, producer. <laughs> <laughs> As if this is directed. Sorry. Our everything. As if this is produced. Like a producer was so much less ridiculous than having a director. Brilliant. Our screenwriter is nodding from the side. Yes, you got that right. <laughs> yeah. Our guy, what does now make words sound good? Yeah, that's none of us. Apart from Albert, actually, the most articulate one among us. Not so sure about that. <laughs> I think it was your make. Yeah. I think it was your makeup artist, actually, Ian. Oh, thank you very much. Not the producer. No, shut up. <laughs> yeah, so Tom and Jerry feels unnecessary, but yeah, we'll wait and see it. Now, this is a film that should be dumped. If you want to release it on the 80th anniversary of Tom and Jerry, dump it into a streaming service. Like I don't know, literally anything. Much like what is going to happen with Wonder Woman 1984. So. It's no big news that films have been hitting um, streaming services um, during COVID. Um, But Wonder Woman 1984 is going to hit HBO Max the same day as as theatrical release with no extra charge as well. Now, that's pretty pretty big because I think Mulan, you had to pay, what, 20... Was it £20 for it or £25? You've had to pay uh, stonker cash. It was effectively like buying the DVD or the the, the Blu-ray. Or yeah, something or twice like. over. You were committing to this yeah, film exactly. 
Um, and that's just to rent it. Wasn't even to own, if I'm right. I don't know. You might be right. I'm. I'm not sure. But yeah, this um, feels. I have Disney Plus, and I don't know. This feels pretty. Um, it's pretty weird, isn't it? I. I don't know. I, th- I think actually, funnily enough, I think this announcement has come at a strange time because, you know, and I, I truly hope these words don't come back to bite me. But as of the last few days, there has been very, very good news about potential vaccines, which would eventually mean, you know, the reopening of cinemas and, you know, life getting back to normal and everything. And so you would understand if maybe some of the film industries might say, oh, hang on, we might see how this goes. And, and so for this to be announced kind of now is a bit like, all right, I'm actually going to say fair play Warner Brothers because I've been whinging for a while now about just bloody release to streaming. Charge, do, in fairness. I don't necessarily disagree with what Disney did for Mulan. I think that if things were going to go on longer, that could have been a good model to get money moving through the film industry again so we can get new films. Oh, yeah, sorry, as if Disney needs... I mean, I don't disagree with you, but as if Disney needs any money. Yeah, of course, yeah. (laughs) No, 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 sorry, you're absolutely right. That particular studio, yeah. you're absolutely right. But, you know, this idea of, well, turn your home into your cinema, charge the price of a cinema ticket, yeah. not a stupid price, but enough to get some money moving. So, yeah, um, I think HBO Max is, you know, the latest, or not the latest, but it's one of the streaming services. I don't, I don't know what it is to cost, but it seems like there's a pretty good lineup on it. I, it's, it's HBO, isn't it? So I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, as our man, as our inside man in the industry, Albert, how does it strike you? Um, well, I think it's been an interesting year for studios. And actually, you say about Disney not needing the money, they really do. They lost a third of their share price this year. So, you know, if, oh, really? Yeah, if they ever needed um, something, because bear, oh, wow. bear in mind what? the Disney model is, you know, we produce films to make um, consumer products, essentially. It's why, you know, we ended up get, why we got a Cars two movie from Pixar um, when nobody really wanted it because they knew they'd sell lots and lots of consumer products. So I think um, from that aspect, I think Disney probably were slightly in panic mode, if I'm honest, um, and you know, kind of presented it as a very well thought out, considered strategy of experimentation. <laughs> um, and maybe maybe that was the case. You know, it's it's hard to know. I think. I, I'm fascinated by the choice on on this because if there was a movie to get me back into a cinema, it would be Wonder Woman, because I think it deserves the canvas of the big screen. Yes. Um, like you said, choose something like a Tom and Jerry or something that you know has family elements to it. I mean, Universe Universal um, went straight to streaming with Trolls. Um, the world tour or something like that um, and that ended up being really successful because it was a family film um it lent itself well to the to the kind of format of of um broadcast vod um so it's it, it's an interesting choice to do it on such a big film i'm fascinated to see how um it plays out in terms of you know the reaction from cinemas and exhibition um because it just feels like they're getting their they're getting it from all, all studios now. So I think whatever happens as a result of COVID, we're go- the whole kind of cinema model and window is going to change dramatically. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just curious that they, they would do it with a crown jewel like Wonder Woman. Yeah, like if, if you're going to hold on to anything, you'd think you'd hold on to that, even if it's... I mean, especially if Marvel, I get, kind of, because they've, I mean, they've got a story that has got momentum and they need to progress. The DCEU is essentially dead in the water. So 
it's we're not particularly waiting for anything other than standalone films. So you've got the Flash film, which is probably going to be a bit of a reset button and then jump off from here and we'll do a cameo from Batfleck if we need to. Um, but yeah, Wonder Woman, it just feels like hold on to it or at least charge for it. It's it's yeah, it's an interesting choice. Um, I mean, it made a lot. It made a lot of money on the first film. Um, yes, it did. It was way the, more than they was thought. Was it their biggest at the time? I think it was in the past billion. Yeah. I yeah, I think it did. Um, it did yeah. way more, way better than they thought. Yeah. So whether there's a nervousness that you know people aren't going to get off their asses and go back to to cinemas and theaters and stuff, um, hard to know. But I think everyone in in the sort of film industry is scratching their head at the moment trying to figure out what to do and you know films are greenlit normally this is a, kind of one of the interesting things i learned from being in the industry is films are greenlit based on a 10-year pnl which means that they must in order to get made they need to make their money back not at the cinema stage but actually in 10 years um and actually where most of the money is made is in selling tv rights and yeah um you know kind of shipping it out to all the services so you know maybe they're recognizing that actually you know if we want to recoup these big budgets then we're better off you got to skip that first bit. yeah we're better off because actually if you have a bad theatrical release it really affects downstream if you have a really strong one it carries through so i guess they're kind yeah. of going we don't really know what's going on with theat- theatrical so let's just skip that and go straight to the to the where the money is essentially um yeah because at the minute poor attendance doesn't necessarily mean you've got a bad film it just means you're not going to risk going out to do it yeah i was just surprised i thought they would have kind of moved it back to the summer next year you know and kind of done what every other studio would have done yeah um, absolutely but there you go especially as you say with a vaccine on the way yeah but i'm excited to see it because it looks bloody brilliant and it's you know, yeah I'm wonder well woman excited. in the 80s i mean that's just perfection as far as i'm concerned oh, that is right in your wheelhouse isn't it <laughs> absolutely right so never-ending story so from one film that's set in 1984 to one that was released in 1984 oh damn it king of the i hand the keys to my segue and the portable charging unit over to albert (laughs) he's he's one up to me there so i'm gonna let you jump off on this chaps it is your childhood film um when did you guys first see it um, and what do you hold dear about it? No, you know what? Stop it. I'm going to do the synopsis. Every flipping week, we wait 15 minutes to do the synopsis. <sighs> Best of luck. Um, yeah, so, yeah, because I usually do this so well, and it's going to be easy in this film. So, um, this is the story of young Bastian, um, who is subject to some bullying and questionable parenting skills, um, stumbles his way into a bookshop, finds a scary old man, slightly creepy. Um, and steals a book, um, gets sent to prison for the rest of his life, and that's about it. Um, Whilst in prison, um, he reads said book, um, and it is the story of Fantasia, which is being pulled apart by the nothing. Um, And by the end of the film, the main character, Atreyu, goes on a journey, finds a dragon, can't save the day, because really the hero of the story is young Bastion, who is reading the book, but they know that he's reading the book and he just has to name the princess and then gets a bunch of wishes. That's pretty accurate. Sean. <laughs> I mean, you basically need a child with faith to change fate. That's the whole point of the film. 
Got it. Right. Are we saying that he's got faith of the heart? He's got faith of the heart, yes. I, I, I would argue that for Bastion, it had been a very long road from there. <laughs> for a trail, it definitely was. For a trail, yeah. No one is going to bend or break no. him. Um, and to be honest, Bastion's time is finally here. <laughs> All of this is accurate. That's it's the best right. thing. Can I, I just say? Yeah. Can I just say at this uh, point? There are going to be many other Trek references throughout this as I reveal some of the secrets brilliant. behind this film. Oh well, I can't wait to see my dreams come alive at last. <laughs> <sighs> you are no longer allowed on this pocket. No. Um, so this is a film that definitely um, benefits, I think from both nostalgia and being so bastion is uh i'm gonna say 12 maybe 11 or 12 well he um, could be 6 or 14 i'm rubbish at aging children 12 <laughs> true but uh also because actually his uh his school that he spends quite a large amount of the film in but as he goes to the halls it, it looks more like a kind of a primary um elementary type school there's drawings on the walls and everything so yeah like that you've got that kind of you could be anywhere from xh to xh but you know you're not dealing with a teenager for example and i think that's part of the crux of the film is that bastion has been told by his dad keep your feet on the ground and stop this dilly dallying and you know daydreaming and everything which is just terrible parenting advice um and he is able to dream his way through the film which i think is kind of Lovely. So is that when? How old were you when you watched it, Sean? I was definitely single digits. And has it really stuck with you? I know it stuck with you, Albert. It has, as I say, scenes of it more so than everything. Like I know I've, you know, the story has been somewhat streamlined in my memory, but the scenes of it that stand out are the ones that really, really made me laugh, made me cry, and scared the absolute pants off me. Uh, because this film is just like, this is for kids. No. Kids that you hate. Yeah, no, it's not. Kids that you want to have nightmares. It's like, you you kids have been a shit all year. Sit down, this is our end of year film. <laughs> but we're only going to watch three scenes. You don't get coal from Santa, you get the never-ending story. Yeah. The German version. <laughs> the German version, exactly. <laughs> so, Albert, when did you first watch it? Why is it stuck with you? So, I have no idea. Um, I mean, I was zero when this film came out. Um, I was like three months old. But I remember watching it on VHS at the time. Um, So I'm guessing I was probably like four or five, something like that. But I remember there's bits of it that stuck with me. Um, And there is a never-ending story, two and three. The less said about Mm. those, the better. But I remember... um, I vividly remember watching the film and then like wanting to watch two straight away. And that film came out six years later. So, oh, so it would have been available. Yeah, so you could be talking as late as 1990, actually, when I saw it now thinking about it. Um, so I was probably like five, six, maybe. Um, but yeah, I just remember watching it a lot. And then I think I asked for the video of it from, as we'd say in Ireland, Santi, or you'd call it Santa. Um, and I got it, and then I basically wore it out. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what I remember. And the thing that always stuck out in my brain was Falcor, and that is the yeah, one image I have in my brain um, and then interestingly I kind of didn't think about it anymore until last year um, when happened upon it on one of the 
various streaming services, I can't remember which one, and watched it again. I was just kind of entranced by it all. I went into like a deep dive into the background and the film and, and the production side. It was a really interesting um, kind of behind the scenes story on this. So, so yeah, so it's kind of, there was bits of it that stuck in my brain and then, and it was always, you know, I always thought of it quite fondly, but didn't really kind of get back into it until last year. Yeah, this is one of those films that missed me entirely. Um, I'm not too sure why, but it, <clears throat> I knew I knew a Falcor. So you showed me that picture, or when Sean suggested we do the never-ending story, I immediately pictured Falcor, and I knew, didn't know anything else. Um, I wonder if the it's an interesting thought experiment. Does the film survive if you take Falcor out of it? Um, because I don't think there's anything in there that's quite as iconic as. As him, I couldn't. I couldn't picture any of the other cast. I think Atreyu is quite iconic for me. Atreyu and he's perfect. Hair. And the Aran and the Aran, yeah, the actual... yeah. And actually, the childlike Impress. I remember her as well, even though she's got a very small part in the film, um, because she's quite ethereal. And um, I just remember. I remember those scenes um, definitely from being a child as well. Well, jumping straight to the end, I think this had I watched it when I was younger, the scene that would have absolutely stayed in my mind is when she's describing that um, Bastion is reading the book and that's how he's come along the journey with Atreyu, but then there's also some people that have come along the journey with Bastion that have watched him get bullied and then I kind of like stood in my chair and I was like, oh, she's watching me. It's creepy. That kind of stuff. It blows my mind now. It would have absolutely destroyed young E and I would have run to my mum and said, she's watching me. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I think it's quite clever in the way it plays out because there was a funny kind of instance when we were watching the film and, and you know, Ian was obviously thinking that Bastion and Atreyu were essentially the same character or, you know, and actually they're not, but then that ends up sort of being the whole crux of the film is that they're, is that they're a mirror for each other. Um, so that was kind of interesting in itself. So this was my thought process was, oh, they look really similar. They've just given him a, They've taken his bowl cut and turned it into like a centre party and he's like, Bastion, warrior prince. But then I was like, well, hang on a minute. They'd have had to wait for his hair to grow because that's not a wig. And then is his voice deeper? His voice is definitely deeper. Maybe that's deliberate. And I, that's what kind of stood out to me. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not, it's not the same kid. It's different. But it's obviously deliberate that they are very, very similar. That any, any kid can be a traitor if they're brave enough and can still dream. Well, that's it. Atreyu is an avatar, really, for the reader yeah. experiencing the uh, adventure as you go along. I'm gonna initial thoughts. I actually liked it. This is gonna be this is gonna be the surprising pod, but Ian likes everything. Um, I've got issues with it. I think I would have loved it had I watched it younger, but I can definitely see it's a very clever story. It's very clever how it involves the viewer and it involves the reader and it. That's the great bit of reading, isn't it? That it captures your imagination. Even at this age, I still read a ton of a ton of Star Trek books because there's something about books that capture you and it forces you to use your imagination to kind of get into the story a bit more. So I think it's really clever the way it plays off of that. Um, visually, I think it really holds up. I think there's some there's some sketchy CGI, but all however they did it back then. But there's some absolutely stunning stunning visuals like when they they arrive at i'm going to get the name of the place right the ivory tower 
when they do the approach to the ivory tower, I was like, "Ooh, pretty." Doesn't look doesn't look dated at all, really. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right, and especially when you consider that most of the production took place in Germany in the eighties, actually in West Germany. Um, so, so, so this film is always thought of as a as an American film, and actually it couldn't be any further from it. So it was, it was produced in Germany. It was directed by Wolfgang Peterson before he kind of cracked Hollywood. Um, so this was his film that he did after Das Boot. Um, and <laughs> das Boot. Das Boot. Um, <laughs> and actually the, the scenes um, in Bastion's home and the, the city are actually shot in um, Canada. So they're shot um, in Vancouver. So most of it was either shot in Germany, in Vancouver, and some of the exterior shots were done in, in Spain. So actually, it never made it to the US in terms of a production. Really so interesting, that, that isn't in it? itself, you know, is quite, um, it's quite cool. I mean, West Germany over East Germany doesn't surprise me because that would be, it's a bit of a kick in the nads if you're making a film in East Germany. It's like, we've got other things to worry about here. We're yeah. not getting quite as well looked after. Specifically in Munich, actually, if, if you want to be specific, at the Bavarian studios in Munich. Um, that's where it was shot. Um, and actually, you can still, to this day, do a tour of Bavarian studios and um, take a photo on Falkor, the actual Oh, prop. that's amazing. You can climb on it and take a picture, yeah. Oh, that is so cool. What? Yeah, Falcor absolutely saves this film for me. Um, amazing. Re- actually, Joe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press you on that one. When you say saves, do, do you mean that, like, is there... If you took... So you, having just watched it, if mm-hmm. you took Falcor out, would you be like, nah, didn't like that? Um, I think I would have liked it, but it, the set pieces with Falcor are brilliant. Um, even when he carelessly drops Atreyu into the ocean, and Atreyu should be dead seven times over, but that's fine. Imagination, whatever. Um, Falcor just the big eyes, the the really clean, long, like kind of diamond detail, and he's just chill as anything. Like, is that it's going to be cool, man? It's fine. It's all good. Yeah, but the nothing's coming. Yeah, whatever. It'll be good. It's fine. I've se- I've read this book. It, it, it turns out okay. Um, I think it does. It, yeah, it's a hard one. I think it does. It it elevates it from really cool story to iconic, doesn't it? It stood the test of time. So, do you want to find out the first Star Trek connection with this film? Let's do it. Hit me. So, so the voice of Falcor, and actually the voice of the Rockbiter, and actually the narrator at the end are all the same person. Um, it's Alan Oppenheimer. And who is a- what a name. and who is Alan Hop- Oppenheimer? He's not God in Star Trek V, is he? He is Captain Keo of the USS Odyssey <laughs> in, okay. Deep in Deep Space Nine. Nine. Yeah, he's also a Klingon, he's also a Klingon cleric in um, Rightful Air, and he had a, a bit part in Voyager as well. So um, he's Brilliant. quite well known. He, he also did a lot of uh, cartoon voice work in the 80s and 90s. So he's quite famous for things like He-Man and um, a lot of those kind of um, f- things at the time. So originally, actually, all the voice work for those characters were done post-production. So um, Wolfgang Peterson got in touch with him to come and uh, basically give the voice of Falkor. 
Um, and he did such a good job. He was like, hey, do you want to do three other characters <laughs> while you're at three it? three more roles for you. Um, so yeah, so, uh, sorry, the other character he does is the um, the wolf. The oh, man, he, do- he did Gamora, Gamora. half of yeah. the cast. He basically did. That's really cool. Um, so there's, there's uh, Star Trek connection number one. It's nice that they've used a, genu- a proper voice actor. Like I think you make this film today and you get... I don't know, you get Chloe Grace Moretz and you get Michael Pena doing half the characters, don't you? It, it's nice that they use somebody with a bit of talent and it shows. And Falcor would definitely be CGI, right? Oh, he would. I mean, I, how has this film not been remade already? Seriously. There's, it's a, story to, there's a story to that. Oh, I mean... It, sorry, so initial... I, I don't know what you want to do. Do you want to, like, pick out some highlights? What's your What's your favourite bit of the film, Albert? What's, what do you look at most fondly? Um, I love the ivory tower scene and yeah. the kind of weird and wonderful characters that are there and the music on the way to the ivory tower which is exceptional as far as I'm concerned um, there are some very peculiar characters in that scene um, I was captivated I, I couldn't tell you anything what's the man that was at the top of the tower um, with the, the, the kind of half horn on his head I can't remember his name Dumbledore standing it, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah Dumbledore's beard um, I couldn't tell you anything he said because I was fascinated by the people in the crowd. Like there are no, there are no small parts in this film at all. So here is the next interesting bit of trivia, which is related to this and also related to the German-U.S. differences in the edits. So Wolfgang Peterson um, had a bit of a fan in Steven Spielberg, and okay. Spielberg edited the U.S. version of this film. And right. basically um, helped tighten it up a bit for for U.S. audiences, but didn't want to be credited. So that's quite cool. The other thing is that's because, really cool because they were mates, and because Spielberg obviously had done a lot of work with another small director called George Lucas. Apparently, in that scene, you can pick out an Ewok, you can see um, E.T. and various other kind of characters that uh, are references to their films, which is quite wow. cool. This is um, accidentally the Senate from episode one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and for some reason, that scene always gives me Federation Council Voyage Home vibes. Yes. Sorry, yes, I was feeling exactly the same thing. Those really exotic aliens that you never see again. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, the long white beard probably helps as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, but even if you look, and, and each time I watch the film, I pay more attention to those background characters. Like, there's some really interesting... Um, choices there around like there's some really small tiny characters there's um, basically what looks like talking trees I think at one point and, and there's um, like three giant statue heads on tiny bodies yes, yes <laughs> it, it's just you have the work that went into it but you you never see them again yeah it's peak fantasy isn't it it's just it's yeah. just awesome um, the other so there's there's lots of trivia about this film but the other thing I love is I that, love it um so as I said, a lot of the film, mainly the work in Fantasia, was shot in Germany, um, in Munich. And it was in the summer of one of the, the most intense heat waves that Germany had ever had. So much so that the the shoot ended up getting dragged out significantly longer because they had to keep cancelling shooting because it was just too hot. But oh, the wow. original the original model they had of the ivory tower melted. <gasps> oh no! <laughs> what and did they so, make it out of? <laughs> I don't know. But they basically had to like pause production for a couple of days while they basically rebuilt the ivory tower. The irony being that at the end of the film, 
you know, kind they of blow it up. <laughs> they blow if, it up. I mean, if they'd have had a bit of foresight, they should have just recorded it melting. Because what an yeah. awesome effect that would have been for nothing just making the ivory tower melt away. That would have been fantastic. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's the scene for me that sticks out the most. I'm quite fascinated by like the architecture of the ivory tower yes. and the actual, um, I'm guessing this combination of a set and miniature model. But I just always think, and even, you know, looking at it fresh again, um, watching it before this, you know, it, it has a, kind of an elegance and a beauty to it that feels quite timeless in a way um, it really does yeah. yeah it doesn't feel dated at all that's the bit of the film that i was kind of specifically referencing earlier on when i say it hasn't aged so the approach to it it that feels feels like it could be in a film today and yeah that like you say the tower itself just looks really simple and elegant and smooth lines and it, it almost looks a bit greek doesn't it yeah yeah and i think that's that's something you get a lot in this film is you have interesting characters who are either like minor characters or background characters and they basically are there for a bit and then they kind of go away it's very sort of alice in wonderland in my head because you you get that kind of you know oh here's some quirky characters hanging out together and then they kind of just so like that that opening sequence with um you know with rockbiter and um, teeny uh, the Mad Hatter, essentially. Te- yeah, Teeny Weeny, who's hmm. played by Deep Roy, Star Trek Connection number two, also plays Keenser in um, Star Trek. Oh, really? Yes. And, oh, awesome. And the Oompa Loompa in the remake of um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, uh, the Willy Wonka version. Yeah, but he has like a funny Southern American accent in this, which I always think is quite hilarious. Um, so, yeah, so. Um, those characters, I I was fascinated by those. I remember as a kid yeah. as well, but then you kind of never really see them. And like the the narcoleptic bat and the, <laughs> the fast snail. Um, so yeah, I love that bat because he shows up at the ivory tower upside down in the window. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is a great so shot. Good. It is a really great shot. Such a good gag. Yeah, because that, that that opening sequence feels very Alice in Wonderland, and then you kind of Absolutely. get then you get kind of into the ivory tower and it's a bit more lord of the rings-esque almost yes and then as you know the film goes on it goes a bit muppets so it's kind of like an interesting mix of different styles and then a little bit fraggle rock as well (laughs) which we need to cover at some point Um, i know it's not a movie but um, fraggle rock is my happy place if you want to see ian gush then (laughs) down a fraggle rock um so That kind of ties nicely into what I was expecting from the film. So I was expecting that first scene where you get introduced to Fantasia, of the the rock biter, the the bat, the snail, that I thought that was our main cast. Falcor will come in and that's our adventuring party that will... uh, An unlikely band of heroes that goes and saves the day. So from then, I just... I didn't expect the nothing to like kind of essentially kind of wipe out half of them, and then they go to like the Council of Elrond at the Ivory Tower, and then it's just a train's journey along the way. That's not the film I thought I was getting into, which is it's yeah, it's quite interesting. Structurally, it is. It's a bit of a strange film, yes, because of exactly what you described. Um, are we are we nearly a third of the way through it when we meet a Treu? essentially um, it's early yeah. enough but yeah well we're halfway uh, through it until we meet falco mm. oh. just 
happy memories of Falcor again. But uh, yeah, so you're kind of, uh, for the first however long, kind of going, who am I following here? And I remember at the time, and even a little bit this evening, going, oh yeah, Bastion. Yeah. Because he kind of vanishes for, what? Obviously, you know, it stops telling his story for about 10, 15 minutes of the film. Yeah, it checks you back in every now and again just when he's shocked about something or surprised. How great a little actor is he, though? Um, really? really Barrett Oliver. I thought, he was, I thought he was really great in it. And, and Wolfgang Peterson, like, gushes about how great he was to work with. Apparently, he used to, like, follow Wolfgang around and used to follow Wolfgang around and basically hold his hands and want hugs and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> Whereas um, Noah Hathaway, who plays Atreyu, was kind of outed by someone the cast, or on the crew rather, as being just an absolute nightmare. Um, really? Oh, really? Which, yeah. Um, Can't which you just be... see a little bit of that in his performance as well? Because yeah. that's, that's the character Atreyu is. It's quite nice that that's what they are, because they are opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? Yeah, and that's what Wolfgang Peterson talks a lot about is that he like he liked that attitude because that's what he wanted from Atreyu. Yeah. You know, this is a, a hero of, of the ages kind of thing. Um yeah. so yeah, so I think I think that's quite funny. In the book, um Atreyu is actually green and I think he has blue hair. So they actually did test painting Noah Hathaway green, but he basically looked like walking fungi so they kind of canned that idea <laughs> fairly early on you kind of lose a little bit of it being relatable to bastion as well don't you yeah you don't mm, you, yeah. You, i don't I don't see what you gain from making him an alien yeah definitely um so yeah you know are, are the kid actors the best actors we've ever seen no but actually you know when you think about the characters i think they got it pretty right um uh so yeah so you know, you can see in, in Bastion that he has that kind of naivety and purity of heart yeah. to kind of save the day. Whereas, um, you know, with Atreyu, you can see that slightly rebellious streak. Um, and Noah Hathaway talks a bit about how, you know, so he's um, half Native American and how that kind of came through in his audition quite strongly. Um, but he was saying... Well, like, the doodle of Atreyu, Atreyu is a Native American, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think, I think sorry, yeah, the one where he's hunting the purple bison, is it? Yeah, something like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, I think the, the thing I love about Noah Hathaway, I mean, he, he didn't really act in much else beyond this, but um, basically tried his hand at being like a professional martial artist and then set up uh, uh. And to this day is, has a tattoo parlor. Um, so you can actually go get... A never-ending story oh, tattoo no from a tree. You know I what? Love. You can trade the rest of your life on that. That done. I mean, that's clever. He, I bet he absolutely makes bank. Yeah, I bet he makes bank out of that. And what a happy yeah. little life as well. Exactly. Um, but he had a really, really shit shoot with this film. So really? um, he ended up with titanium screws in his spine. Um, because he got so badly injured, uh, so he kind of jokes that. Is it when that... he's getting fucking chucked from the tree four times by that no, shit-faced person? It's not. So um, there were several things that happened to him. So first off, he was thrown off one of. So there was two horses that um, essentially played Artex, um, and one of them threw him off um, and stood on him. 
Um, oh. he, also, he also got his leg caught in the elevator that they used to slowly sink our text down into the, the swamp. Yeah. Um, and he almost oh. got his eye gouged out by um, the... So basically, Gamork is a... It's a robot. It's not even a puppet. It's sort of like a robot. And it fell right. on top of him. Sliced, Jesus Christ. Sliced open his eye and he couldn't breathe and everything. So, so yeah. Oh. So he, he had a really rough... Uh, a rough shoot. How? Um, how was that? How did any of that happen? Because it was the eighties, man. Yeah. And, and he jokes about how the Falcor model was treated better than he was, and <laughs> basically they took better care of the model. I um, bet. Yeah, because Falcor, it's an actual practical model, forty-three foot long. Took 15, oh. 15 people to operate it, um, and it was made of like airplane steel. Um, Jesus Christ! But that in fairness, insane. of the two of them, who do you remember first from the film? <laughs> I mean, Falcor straight away. I hadn't even seen the film. When I knew who Falcor was, and he's still That's... he's still surviving in that studio to this day. Um, yeah, he's not opening some backwater tattoo joint, is he? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> he's not. living off the land. One might say he's more lucky. Indeed. Hey. There we go. We <laughs> that is that is depressing and phenomenal. Um, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love these little... This film has got such a background, hasn't it? It really does. And and Wolfgang Peterson wasn't even the first director on the film, so there was another German... Oh, I thought this was his story. No, so um, it's based on a book written by um, Michael Ender, I think it's pronounced. Um, so the book was actually really famous before the film ever was and had quite a cult following. Um, but uh, so basically the rights to the so the book was sold to a German producer who um, worked with a director called Helmut Dietl, I think it is uh, pronounced, uh, who en- ended up leaving the project. Wolfgang Peterson had just kind of come off Das Boot and was available and looking to do something very different, and that's what he ended up doing. But, <laughs> just a but, bit. but basically, the author of the book tr- sued the production to try and stop the film being made because he was so disgusted by what they had done with his source material oh, really? um, and in particular he even set up a, a, a press conference where he basically destroyed the film um, and said it was completely not his vision it was he called it pornographic because of the sphinx um characters with the big boobs yeah we'll, we'll get on to that we'll get on to wrong. that uh, but yeah he, he mm. filed lawsuits to, to try and stop it and um they were all thrown out so the film obviously was made uh, and went on which is why to this day there hasn't been a reboot because his estate have you know been oh, very seriously? clear about that and there's been lots of lawsuits and stuff going on so um you know it doesn't look like it would ever you know get made um and wow. he's th- that author is dead now you know he's but he's his thoughts on the film were quite well known so that's the fascinating bit how can when does it become uh a public what's the thing in the public domain because that's the only time years isn't i it? thought it was 50 50 years oh, after the no death, it's longer it? than that i thought it was oh, 50 so i know for music isn't it 50 years after published because mccartney went on a a big rampage to try and stop that because the Beatles music is going to be yeah. in the public domain or most of it already is um, and he's been extremely possessive about where the Beatles songs are used um, that's fascinating it's like how, I don't know, I guess it is 
I suppose when the author passes, not to say who cares, but who cares? Like, yeah. make but, it? But, but he's, he's a state, whoever is left, obviously. It sounds yeah. like there's a lot of infighting going on there. Um, but yeah, I, I just I think that's... In a way, I'm glad because I don't think this film should be rebooted or remade or anything. I think it is no, it doesn't an artifact it. of its time. I think it it's mm. almost a perfect film in its own little way. Um, mm. And so, you know, I'm actually quite happy about that. Um, but interesting, the other interesting thing about the, the book is the film actually only um, is based on the first half of the book. Uh, so then Never Ending Story 2 picks up with the second half and does a really shit job of it. So. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, yeah. Because so, it kind of wraps up quite nicely. Yeah, it does. Um, so yeah, as I said, the production of the, of the film is really fascinating when you get into it. It was the most expe- expensive film made outside of the US and the Soviet Union at that point in the world. Oh, wow. Um, so they spent, I think it was 60 million Deutschmarks on the budget, which is something like 28, 29 million dollars at the time. Yeah went on to take a hundred million in box office and had an incredible life in, in home entertainment as well. So like it was a massive hit. Yeah. Massive huge. Hit. Um, so, you know, considering it, it's like it started as a small German production. It ended up doing really, really well. Being an absolute monster. That's yeah. brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the, um, what I was going to say about the, the whites, I can kind of see why the author had some issues with it because it almost looks like a Jim Henson production, doesn't it? So it has got it's got its own mark and character, and you can if you watch that, and the author's just like that's it's not what's in the book. <laughs> Doesn't it's definitely not what I pictured. So you can absolutely you can see why he gets so so uh, I guess hurt by it. And I think I might be I can kind of see myself being the same if if I wrote a book and well Sean. If somebody tried to make a movie out of your book and it was ignore the paycheck, put that to one side for a minute because you little mercenary, you take it. Ah. But <laughs> imagine if it was completely the polar opposite to your vision for your story, you'd be pretty hurt, wouldn't you? Well, that's. I mean, I suppose I would want to have some when you're doing the contract when you're selling the yeah. rights because a part of it is he did sell the film rights. Yeah, you know, I mean, and. Either you put a clause in that says I must have at least some creative control, which I'm sure every author at some point has probably either tried to do and been stopped, or maybe there was some people just like just just give me the money. Yeah, just or give you me just the money. acknowledge that this is going to be in a different medium to the book. Yeah, it's going to be what That's it is. It as well. I think yeah, like I I've read I've actually I've not read the whole book to my shame, but I have read a bit of it, and I think it lends itself well to this kind of storytelling um and then i look at this you mentioned correctly obviously the jim henson workshop uh this for me i think makes a nice kind of loose trilogy with dark crystal and labyrinth oh I yeah i had dark crystal and labyrinth vibes all over this film so even though they're not you know the same studio or anything like that um i love them for that time and that goes to albie to your point as well of it's very of a time. I, I don't personally want to see it rebooted or, or remade. I like that it. You know, you can almost see the strings. Yeah. Um, you it's can. Part of the magic of it. I could watch it today, knowing it was in the eighties and expecting a dodgy, dodgy dragon flying around, and you can 
compartmentalise that in your head, can't you? And just enjoy the film for what it is. Um, there's some bits that are a bit too cheesy and a bit too saccharine for me, but that's just because I'm dead inside. That's not a comment on the film at all. Um, the 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 score. It's good, isn't it? But they don't use I because I, I've only watched this version. There's two scenes that really stood out, which have, I, for want of a better phrase, Falcor's theme. It, kind of the oh, I know where he's flying. Yeah. I was that is proper uplifting and just joyful, isn't it? Is that what was the big departure from the German version to the American re-edit? So. Um... The German version, um, the composer had done a lot more kind of orchestral takes on it. So the version we heard was quite orchestral. Um, yes. And the theme which you're talking about, which is, you know, the kind of the flying theme, if you will, um, the Falkor theme, uh, basically remains in the American version. Um, there were a couple of bits with with the edits and that that needed to to be rescored, so they brought in um, a composer called Giorgio uh, Moroder, I think it's pronounced, um, who actually you know is a well known uh, uh, kind of score composer. So he had you know he did the score music for Scarface, Superman three, and actually had won an Oscar for I think it was Midnight Express. Um, he also weirdly had produced a whole bunch of records for Donna Summer, so a lot of like disco tracks. That's, <laughs> that's, that's really sort of random. What? Um, but he he was known for kind of more of an eighties sound track, so he focused much more on synths and percussion. Yeah. Um, so when you watch the US version of the film or the international version, as they called it, um, it's much more eighties synth kind of vibe, whereas the German version, interestingly, is more orchestral. Right, that's fascinating, because my next point, I'll show you my notebook, was the lack of 80 synth in this film is what doesn't age it. So I was fully expecting a ton of squeaking and synth stuff and like lots of keyboards, and you don't get that. You get this uplifting, swooping orchestral stuff. So I, if, I watched, if I watched the right version of the film, I'd have been right on the money. Yeah, I think that the general consensus is that the original score is probably more timeless, as you rightly point out, um, because it's orchestral. Um, but the feeling was going into the American market, you need that eighties vibe, you need that synth sound. Of course sound. you do. Uh, Today it with, would be dubstep. And and also they added in the infamous Never Ending Stories song, um, which uh, Marauder actually composed as well, which went on to be a massive hit around the world. Um, and that was missing from the German version of the film, um, which again is quite interesting because it's it's probably one of the best known aspects of the film to kind of modern audiences, I guess. So much so that I ended up having I don't know if you guys watch Stranger Things, but in season three, there's actually a, a Dustin and Susie have a little duet of that same so song. Good. It's so good. Um, so it's kind of like come back into the uh, back into the kind of Zeitgeist. landscape and zeitgeist thank you yeah. um so it's quite funny how that's come around again uh, but yeah i think it was fascinating watching this version knowing kind of what the, the the regular version that everyone else knows 
it's like I really liked the score work in this. It's darker, it's more intense. Um, there's a yeah. different opening theme, but I think it's it, it makes it more timeless. I think you're absolutely right. I like it. I really, really love the score, and I think it probably would affect would excuse me would have affected my enjoyment of the film had the score not been so just a piece of music rather than something of the 80s um so i would be quite interested to watch it again just for that um just briefly back on not having making sure it isn't remade today it i still i think it has a place in today's audience I think even the story itself, even more so than in the eighties, because the the crux of the story is the the nothingness. I guess is a is a metaphor for growing up and like a loss of innocence. So you stop dreaming and you get to your nine to five day job, which is Bastian's dad. He is just stay grounded and you'll get a good job like me and be a great dad like me as well. And you know what? I'm pretty good at therapy, and I'm just going to put some eggs in my orange juice. Um, and why? <laughs> why? Why have you done that? Just, what? just use vodka, honestly. Um, but so it, and it's even the the book, the creepy bookkeeper mentions um, video games. Um, it's there is so much of that that is ahead of its time, and you could easily just say, "Hey, get your head out of your mobile phone and read a book," because it's just as much imagination there. And we we've all we all put our dreams on hold more than more than ever today don't we just to get a job and earn some money so i think that there's a story there that works today as well it's a never-ending story i think maybe the older look at that bloody lovely <laughs> i mean the older people get the more they might identify oh with yeah elements of this film um maybe not enjoy it as a filmic experience filmic um, did we just invent a filmic. word there sean Filmic, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm a writer. I can I can create whatever I want. I'm a famous writer. Says, all words are made up. Um, but there is just themes that are directly written for children to take on surface level and absolutely speak to the heart of the adults who are either forced to watch this with their kids or are coming back to this yeah. from when they watched it as children. It's a great film to watch with your kids, I'd imagine. Um, not that any of us can comment on that, but I would imagine it's a... I would love to experience this through the eyes of a child because I think it would it would probably it would capture a lot more. But having said, like I said, I really enjoyed it. I think there's there's a lot to like in this film. There really is. Um, right. So boobs on the phoenix. Can we please get a bit more into that? Like, what the fuck was that about? <laughs> boobs on the sphinx. Um, that's my sorry sphinx. Yeah, that's yeah, my yeah. new my new like expletive. It's like <laughs> boobs on a sphinx. What what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really know. All I know is it really pissed off the author. Um, and there's kind of, you know, we had like a bit of a joke when we were watching the film, you know, because the whole point is he could only pass through if he is sort of uh, pure of heart or something to that, you know, typical. Yeah. typical don't film. look at the boobs. Don't look at the boobs. Don't look at the but boobs. But actually, he's just staring, and there's a brilliant shot where he's <laughs> from underneath where you just see cleavage in his face. Yeah. Um, and he's so distracted he forgets that like he could probably get zapped at any point um, but yeah it's an interesting choice and you know the film did get a PG rating so you know I'm sure that had a pretty significant part to play in that yeah um, exactly I just, but, I but, don't he, get but it. you were you were literally like ooh boobs yeah <laughs> <you saw> <laughs> It caught me off guard because I saw the eyes to begin with, and that's what I was focusing on. And then it does like a, a long shot backwards, and I was like, 
oh titties like what <laughs> really big nipples what's that going on about oh that's going to be the cold open isn't it shit um but <laughs> kudos though for seeing the eyes first yeah yes. i mean i'm up here guys come on I yeah I I'd love to hear what the I thought you were gonna drop some like director knowledge on us that he was gonna try and defend that as as a creative choice. No, I don't know about that. I think it's just yeah, who's the choice? The temptation sure. of a woman. Yeah, well, Wolfgang Peterson choice. had bought these two statues for a party he had attended, had them sitting there in the house, and said, "Do you know what this would be good for?" <laughs> Yeah, because yes, my, my children's film. They're definitely not presented like that in the book, so it was definitely a creative choice. Uh, yeah, and that's definitely. where probably the German element of the production kicks into gear. What are you trying to say, Albert, about German filmography? <laughs> that it's very artistic and uh, considerate of the human form. <laughs> you know what? You've saved that one. Well done. <laughs> um, right, I'm going to tell you the one bit that it nearly lost me. This bit of the foot, it nearly lost me entirely, and I was going to come on the podcast, destroy this film, and your childhood with it. Um, Artex, the horse, dying in the swamp. Not cool. Yeah. Oh, God, you wouldn't be... like It It destroyed our childhood a long time before you would ever have ever had a choice to do it there. What a horrific scene. Horrific! He, I would have... Young Ian would have cried. So I cried when Bambi's mother... So I've got a right, really quick sidebar. Um, this is a really... So it's one of these memories that's so early it could be invented, but I have had it corroborated by my mum, which is cool. So it was the first time I ever watched um, Bambi, and for some reason mum was in the kitchen and had left me to watch this film on my own. I can only guess she'd never seen it. Um, Bambi's mum died. I cried so much that there was a Terry's chocolate orange next to me and I ate the whole thing. <laughs> so, so mum comes in, me bawling my eyes out, an empty Terry's chocolate orange wrapper on the floor, chocolate all over my face, and she's like, What what's happened here? And I'm just like, Bambi's mum died. So you clearly eat your feelings then. Yeah, I absolutely ate my way through that. So God knows what I would have done when you actually watch Artex sink and die. The, the realisation on my face of, he's getting lower. He's not He's not moving because he's stuck and Atreyu doesn't realise this. And then when Atreyu realises it, I'm like, it's fine, he's going to gallop out and there'll be, nope, bubble, bubble. Bubble. Not cool. Yeah, it, it's funny because obviously Sean and I knew it was coming, so we were, uh, you know, we were all watching this film on on Zoom and uh, together, so we could see our reactions. And Sean and I were just like messaging each other, going, "It's coming, isn't it? It's gonna happen." <laughs> and then to watch your face, literally, kind of go, "Oh yeah, he'll be out in a second to, oh god, this is really happening." Yeah, um, it was. It's intense because it's so lighthearted. It's so he's Atreus, just happy. Cool, this is fine. Come on, you can get through this. I was not. And then watching you guys, watching my reaction, I was like, those bastards knew this was going to happen. <laughs> Don't let the sadness get to you. Oh, that. Why are they looking at me like that? <laughs> what are they expecting? The sadness I... of the swamps. And that's the bit where it, it, it proved to me that, Ian, you don't have. A cold heart you actually have some warmth in there somewhere because you were getting proper upset yeah if you never tell anyone before have we enjoyed you. watching a man break so much uh-huh. it, and you know what what got me was i'm probably reading way too much into this and i've got 2020 eyes on it um not 2020 vision i meant the year 2020 
just push through the sadness. And it, I, I don't know how aware there would have been in 1984 of this, but just push through the depression and you'll be fine. That's what really struck a nerve with me because it, it was, yeah, push through and it'll all be good. And you can't, sometimes the swamp gets you and you can't push through it. That's a very interesting, very interesting reading of that because on the surface, Atreyu never gives in, which is why he doesn't get swallowed by the swamp. And then Artax, who is, I suppose, arguably a simpler yeah. character, just says, nope. Gonna get me. And I, 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 I don't know how much awareness it would have had, but that it did feel like it's almost something you can control, which it obviously isn't. Um, yeah, it's interesting watching that with kind of a more modern, modern set of eyes, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. I, t- I took that to be that he was uh, Atreyu was the more kind of classical hero. That at the end of the day, nothing actually beats him. Yeah, very very masculine. I will push through, and it's mind over matter. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's not strong enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, moving on to a, a, the another more uplifting scene was the crying rock muncher. Oh man, that, that's the other bit that killed me when it's like these look like really strong hands. And I'm like, oh my god, he's just watched all of his new friends die. Oh, this film's dark. It puts you through the rigor of this film. It really does. That middle third definitely does. Although, right, the rock biter. You, you know, you know that joke that floats around the internet of the gingerbread man in the gingerbread house. Is he sitting in a house made of flesh, <laughs> or is he made of house? Yeah, it's a bit the same when you know the rock biter is there biting all the rocks. It's like, oh my god, yeah. that could be a kid. It could be. Yeah, it's very. It's a different type of rock, wasn't it? It's was limestone. Just fuck those limestone bastards. <laughs> bloody limeys um, <laughs> but yeah I think Falcor did save it for me so yeah I wasn't on board with the horse biting it but Falcor comes along and all is well I don't know how they pull off that trick but he is proper uplifting can I just be the one to say I'm glad you're not on board with the horse dying oh no that's fair yeah that warms my heart to know that you're not happy <laughs> I mean that Artex died horribly it's almost worse that he comes back at the end because it kind of belittles it doesn't it it's like eh, didn't mean anything he's back now no 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 I disagree it's it's the one I actually have it written down it's one of the few stories where I'm okay with the reset button because that's kind of the point. Oh no, I get it. As a the way I did. Yeah, no, I yeah, do understand. Like, so everyone yeah. comes back. I was expecting a reset um, button because never-ending story, but it's still. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's still. I think it's just the scene itself just doesn't sit right with me for a lot of reasons. But yeah, there we go. So for, from a production standpoint, it's quite fascinating as well. That scene took two and a half weeks to shoot. Um, what the sinking horse oh, scene? Two and a half weeks. Get and, out. And they had to spend. I think it was like six, seven weeks training the horse. Oh, what, to just stay still? To stay still, because obviously horses naturally aren't designed to stay still when they're sinking. Um, no. And there was sort of an urban legend that, that kicked up around this that the horse died. in The actual horse in the shoot died, but that was not true. Um, so the horse... Thank goodness. Was, the horse was actually gifted to Noah Hathaway at the end of the... Of, production um who plays atreyu uh but they couldn't get him out of germany because of you know whatever kind of legal things so the horse ended up with 
Noah Hathaway's stand-in and went on to live for another 20 years after this film. Oh, was that's incredible. So it has got a happy ending. Oh, um, that's awesome. That is a happy ending. But yeah, but that poor horse like deserves an Oscar <laughs> for oh, doing something for that was absolutely. so against... Uh, it's actually a everything she, it, in its being. It was it was a she, in fact. Uh, it oh, goes sorry. against well in the movie. I think it's supposed to be he, but uh, yeah. she went against everything that nature had you know forced her to do. Um, so you know, and in fact, she does such horse. a she does such a good job that I thought when it kind of gets up to you can't see the legs anymore. I thought it was an animatronic horse because I was like, there's no way that horse. You're not submerging a horse and it isn't bolting. And I was trying to look at the eyes because the eyes is usually where it's a giveaway. And I was like, "No, that's that's a horse. That's still a real horse. Yeah. That's oh, I don't know. I'm still not. I'm not okay with putting a horse through that because the horse doesn't know it's a film. But okay, cool, fine. The horse thinks it's been conditioned to die. <sighs> Sorry, that wasn't a deliberate horse noise. <laughs> that was me being exasperated. <laughs> <laughs> that was me being exasperated. Sorry. Um. Right. Have you got any other cool tidbits? <laughs> tidbits. Have you got any more cool behind-the-scenes um, nuggets for us? Uh, the only other one I have, which I think is hilarious, um, another instance of someone having to be retrained, uh, the childlike empress, and that's literally what she's called in the credits, mm. Um, mm. was played by, I think, an 11 or 10 or 11-year-old girl who, um, after she had been cast, lost her front two teeth because that's what happens with kids um so she actually is wearing false teeth in the film and they had to, to retrain her to not talk with a lisp so that, that was the other thing so this, <laughs> so this film originally was supposed to be a uh, a three-month shoot and it ended up being a full year partially because <gasps> of all the trouble that they went through but also because um wolfgang peterson was such a perfectionist where yeah. most directors would do five or six takes he would do 40 Oh, um, my God. oh for God's and sake. you know it's one of the things that the child actors talk about to this day is like we just kept doing stuff over and over and over so the scenes of as i said the horse in the swamp plus the the scenes with morla so just that sequence took over two months to shoot and that must have been miserable because that yeah. noah is covered in swamp muck the entire time like that must have been absolutely miserable to film yeah that's Jesus that's Christ. the price of perfection so no i've got a point on that so i'm not a director famously i'm quite i put that in my twitter bio not a director however so um kind of if you're gonna film something 40 times statistically one of them will be good isn't that just not directing like, surely the mark of a good director is I'm going to pull a good performance out of an actor. If I do it 40 times in 40 different ways, it, it takes the skill out of it. I'll just pick the best of the 40. Well, isn't a director also kind of a project manager? So everything has okay, to Okay, yeah, so it's, yeah, director isn't just film this, no, film it slightly differently. They, they have to, yeah, they manage the entire thing. I suppose directors do it differently, but yeah, you are an entire project manager, but yeah, I kind of think doing it 40 times is cheating. It's like making 40 predictions. One of them's going to be right, and you hold on to that one. Fool me 39 times? Shame on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Say that yeah. to Wolfgang's face and see what happens. Bring it. <laughs> Just make sure there's a really big wall between us. Way, topical joke for 1989. Way. <laughs> 
Brilliant. Right, Guy, anything else you want to talk about the never-ending story? Uh, just that part two and three are really bad. Um, and the entire... So where do they go? What do they do? So basically, in never-ending story... Earth. Yeah, and in never-ending story two, Bastion goes to Fantasia. Um, but they recast everyone. So um, in the second film, Jonathan Brandis plays Bastion, who would later go on to play Lucas in Sequest ESV, who then unfortunately um, took his own life in his 20s. Um, and then the other one, um, so so Atreyu um, is played by Kenny Morrison in the second film, whose other claim to fame is that he played crewman Geron in Learning Curve on Voyager. There we go, another Star Trek reference, bloody hell. What about... Th- of course. Where, where did... No, come on, you know that episode. Oh, I know the episode. Oh, right. I couldn't tell you the character. Um, so where does three go, sorry? Um, yeah, I think you're right, Sean. I actually don't remember much about three, but I think they come into the real world, the Fantasia characters. I think it is. But I mean, I haven't seen that since yeah. early 90s. I mean, most people say just avoid it like the plague because it's not worth watching. Mm. Um, but the no, second film was only a hit in Germany. So I think we did this with Albert. Sean, what was your favourite bit of the film? Um, I Pretty much everything with Falcor. I think I'm with you on that one. Um, it's just a kind of happy feeling yeah. set of scenes. Um, I do I do like the ending. Actually, not, not the ending with Bastion, but just before that. I like where it's all about, you know, dream and, you know, cop onto yourself and stop being so serious <laughs> yeah which is the film in a nutshell i'm kind of like get on with it like a trio stop screaming my ears are hurting and fucking get on with it end the film <laughs> and i never like it when they turn and face the screen I-, I know in this film it works but when little miss empress turns and looks directly into the camera at nothing takes me out of a movie more than than that and i get it it works in this film but it's still <laughs> I want to know how it became an empire. Like what Fantasia? How, how many uh, yeah, just... Fantasians did they have to slaughter <laughs> to, you know, to set up her new empire? I was about to say not all empires are bad, but then I went straight to Terran Empire, Roman Empire, British Empire. No, you're you're right on the money there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's actually Palpatine in a new. Body. Yeah, there's not really been a benevolent empire that I can think of, but <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, anything else you want to get off your chest, guys? This never-ending pod. <laughs> No. Legend has it still being filmed somewhere. Yes. No, I'm happily surprised. Really, really, really enjoyed it. I'm not convinced I'll watch it again, um, but I did enjoy it. Um, however, I think I'll probably watch the Page Master first. <laughs> same, oh, same story, isn't it? But not same. Very similar. Don't know. Well, can I, like I just say Master. thank you for not ruining my childhood? No, I, I will do it. I will if it legitimately deserves to be ruined. I will be there for it. But it is. <laughs> The, the the bits of your childhood that I ruin are belittled if I then ruin something that doesn't deserve ruining. <laughs> I think I follow that. Yeah. <laughs> Just know that Thank when I when you? I make you feel like crap, it's for a very deserved reason. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Thank you, Albert, for joining us. That is, you had some knowledge about this film that I did not anticipate. Yeah. That's Sorry, brilliant. Sean, I took your little misexposition role this time. I... It- to be honest, sometimes it's nice to be able to shrug off that cloak of 
uh, Ian's disdain. Yeah. So you may absolutely have that for this week. Don't. Did worry. you know that this little-known fact that the director actually ate oranges all the way through? Yes, Sean. Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs> but it's vitamin C. <laughs> little put some eggs in exposition. it. Don't forget the eggs. Yeah, just stick some eggs mm. in it. <laughs> Brilliant. No, loved it. Wow, man, if we didn't do Neverending Story, what else is in your childhood that we could ruin? Uh, mm. Into the West. Into the West is a good one, yes. What's that? I, I was going to say, I guarantee you Ian has not <laughs> heard, of, heard Into of Into the it. West. Is this a little Dublin film? It's not a Dublin film, but it certainly is an Irish it's an film. Irish cool. film, yeah. Might bring you back to do that then. Cool. Well, thank you again, Albert. <laughs> it's a horse, oh. Tato! It's There's a horse! There's another horse involved, you love it. I really hope this horse survives and doesn't get turned into a potato. Because all I heard there was horse tato. And that's everything for this week, guys. Thank you very much for joining us for an Englishman and an Irishman. I have been Ian. And... <laughs> no, it's brilliant. Right, thank you, Albert. My favourite movies are when we get to do a deep dive on behind-the-scenes shit, because that is fascinating to me, how some of these films ever get made. What? What? You just give out to me for doing that. No, I lo- but Albert did it really well. Um... <laughs> Thanks, Sean, for being here. We'll see you next week, guys. Bye! (laughs) Oh, wait, no, sorry, Albert, where can they find you? (laughs) Hiding in embarrassment for Sean (laughs) right now. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Albert Hogan. Good, Sean, I'll let you do the wrap-up then. (laughs) Cheers, guys! Bye! Bye. I'm such a dick. Thanks for listening to An Englishman and an Irishman Go to the Movies. I, at least, would love to hear your thoughts on the episode. Sean couldn't care enough to record this with me. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at EnglishIrishGTM, email us at anenglishmanandanirishman at gmail.com, and check out our website, www.anenglishmanandanirishman.wordpress.com, where you'll find all of our previous episodes. You'll find me on Twitter at galactic underscore Dave, and you'll find Sean at Sean Ferrick. Thanks for being awesome, and we love you very much.